This is the London FinTech Podcast, brought to you by your host, Mike Ballaman, bridging the worlds of suits and t-shirts, of finance and technology, bringing you insights, stories, and inspiration from the golden age of opportunity and innovation happening in London right now. Hi, this is Mike Ballaman, this is London FinTech Podcast, episode 181 brought to you in association with Smart Pension and the enlistedboard.com. And I'm delighted to be joined today by Richard Hargreaves to talk about how to be an angel. Richard has an astonishing 50 years experience in investing in young companies and helping them to grow, starting with three eyes in the 1970s when they were next to the only institutional provider of development capital in the UK. His career, which we'll talk about soon, includes being a former chair of the BVCA, the British Venture Capital Association. And this year, he has released a thoroughly updated version of his book on angeling called Business Angel Investing, Everything You Need to Know About Investing in Unquoted Companies. Listen to the end for a 25% off promo code. One must-relate factoid from Richard's book is that a monkey picking investments at random would have outperformed TV's Dragon's Den which, like all TV, gives an increasingly false and negative view of the world. As I've mentioned before, in my extensive conversations with 100 boarders, the capital A angel, as I call them, is worth more than their weight in gold. Praise for such folks is almost without limit. Equally, at the opposite end, there is what I call the small A angel, who, having given you a few quid, then just clutters up your boardroom and proves hard to shift. Anyway, I suspect that you all know what angels are. Private individuals are the most important source of equity capital around the world for fundraisings of one to two million pounds. Virtually every megatech you have heard of has started with angel funding. So, whether you are personally looking to invest in small companies yourself and do it more professionally for better results, we'll come to Richard's amazing returns that he's achieved in the show, which he shares in his book, or you are a founder wishing to know more about angels and how to attract the right angels into your life, listen up as we have a rare opportunity to share in the key lessons from a lifetime's learning. Plenty to talk about, so let's get on with the show. Good morning, Richard. Thank you for joining me on the show today. Morning, Mike, and it's a pleasure to be here. And we were talking about sort of various ways to, to, to banter off at the start of the show, and as I've related recently, this is getting increasingly uh, uh, challenging. Although, in your case, we thought the exception might prove the rule in that your career journey is slightly longer than perhaps the average listeners on on the show and as we were talking beforehand i'm perhaps myself over twice the average age of uh, some of the founders and and do you um without giving too many tales away are probably sort of roughly three times the, the, the <laughs> yes. average age so in terms of in terms of career when we start the show sometimes people literally have just two or three or four years of their career which is easily summarized but uh, your career is quite considerable in this i mean how do you start off from being a lad to ending up where you are today in terms of this whole business world and, and, and what incarnations you had? Yeah, well, it was not a very deliberate path. I started off by being educated as an engineer. I have a first degree from Cambridge. I have two degrees from Imperial College, including a PhD. And at the end of that, I didn't want to stay in research. And I applied for a job in the civil service which was looking for people to sit on committees or to help to help the, the, the process of providing research grants to universities for specific projects. I did that for two years, got very interested in finance, very uninterested in the civil service. And amazingly, I remembered that my 
careers man at the university had said, come back to me anytime. And I went back and he said, here are a number of ideas, merchant banks, this, that and the other. And one of the names was the unlikely titled uh, Industrial and Commercial Finance Corporation, ICFC as it then was, which became the 3i, which is the quoted FTSE 100 company we see today. And what year are we talking about now? This is 73. And when I joined 3i, it was the dominant source of equity capital to unquoted companies in the UK. We had a portfolio of about 3,500 companies. We were operating through approximately 25 offices. And the frontline people such as me went round, talked to the entrepreneurs, did deals with them, uh, and so on. And I did that for 10 years before I branched out on my own. Just on that point about the, the model is interesting. I mean, I've forgotten how many offices that you had and how extensive it was. I mean, that, that is a, a very good example of the transition that's taken place over our lifetime from what I see as post-Second World War massive state centralism. So when you were a lad and joining this sort of market, there was basically something, I mean, it was, okay, it wasn't quite part of the state, but the banks had set it up and, the, and there, was war, there was one of it. It was a kind of almost a monopoly, offices around the country. And it, from a central perspective, provided capital to the appropriate businesses. Fast forward to where we are today and you're writing your book and goodness knows how many VCs there are and of course how many angels around the world. So there's been a, a, a big change in your life from sort of almost a central allocation to capital to almost leaving it to the marketplace. Yes, hugely, although even though now we also have another government agency called British Business Bank, which has similarities. When ICFC started, it was recognised that young companies, people starting businesses, it was extremely difficult to raise money. You've got friends and family who wouldn't have much money. You've got banks who were risk averse and the stock market was out of sight. So in a funny way, 3i started, 3i, ICFC then, started to fill that equity gap, which is the equity gap that in a way angels have filled ever since. And that worked like that. We were the dominant supplier till mid 80s, early mid 80s, when the American model of venture capital started to come over here and people started to raise money from institutions like pension funds put into pots of money to go and invest in things. And at that point, they invested in early stage businesses too. Later on, regrettably, they discovered it was easier and more profitable to buy big things, borrow lots of money to pay for them, and then run them for a while with improved management or more motivated management and sell out at a profit. And all of a sudden, the venture capital money went away from backing small things, which brought, brought the emphasis back on angels. Ironically, the wheel has turned again, and now because of the tech tsunami and the attraction of early stage fintechs and whatever, we find there are VCs that are prepared to come in quite early, but still the angel is an extremely important part of that process, which is how we've come to see government support for that throughout the whole period. You know, tax incentives, incentivized support. Yes, and we've gone back to a mixed model, as you say. So there's the British Business Bank. Uh, recently, we covered the government's sort of five-year plan, quotes, unquotes, for, for fintech. So uh, this is what happens when you vote for state socialism, uh, albeit they call themselves conservatives these days. So uh, we have uh, a lot of the, the centralism. And as you say, the, the tides of venture capital come in and go out and it mutates yeah. into private equity. But the one thing that's been consistent throughout is the role of the private individual and for those people sort of somewhat younger than us 
there was not much money around in the 60s and uh, 70s at all. There was you know, quite a lot of uh, poverty um, and uh, the remaining aristocrats were sort of being challenged in terms of managing land and the few estates going. And actually, one of the things has been a monetary phenomena, which is that the massive explosion in the money supply, especially post-2008 and all that kind of stuff, has led to tons of liquidity sort of sloshing around. But for people who weren't there, there wasn't much money. These days, a lot of the guests who've been on the show will have raised money from, quotes friends and family. Probably mates have been in the city if they're in fintech. And, you know, a mate of yours at Goldman Sachs can bung 50 yeah. grand here, bung 50 grand there without thinking about it. That did not happen when you started your career no, in 1973. When I was backing uh, startups back in the 70s, and, and one, one, for example, that we backed, I, realized, I remember putting 25,000 in, and I think we had 20% of it, and that's Microfocus, which is a FTSE 100 company. Were there any angel investors in there? No, there were not. The two guys who started it had scratched together whatever money they got and somehow survived on the shoestring. And we provided 25,000, which uh, I'm not sure what 25,000 would equate to now, but maybe quarter of a million, that sort of thing. But we didn't see any angels. And when I think back to my career at 3i, I was not used to seeing angels. That period from mid 70s to early 80s, as you say, for various reasons, angels didn't, uh, didn't really exist. And one interesting thing I was um, just on this sort of small snippets that I, I came across in your book was the etymology or rather the origin of the use of the word angel in this context. And it strikes me as very typical of modernism or the American empire because um, in, in Europe, and it's been largely forgotten now, although it's inverted in some ways, there used to be this thing called Christianity. And, and in Christianity, as far as I remember from my lessons at school, which you might have also had, the angels are sort of divine beings of light, <laughs> protecting yes. the world and showing the world. Now, of course, it's a completely modernist American empire thing that, that uh, such a being turns into someone who's going to give you a few quid. So everything has got financialized in the, in the world. So where, where did the word angel come from? You said you, you hadn't really heard of them as such. Yes, well, angel was used for originally for financiers who finance Broadway productions. And they were financed by private individuals. They were seen as angels. Well, they were, in a way, gifts from God, weren't they? Otherwise, we can't put this great musical on. And then back about 1978, when angel funding, as we're, we're talking about here, started to become important in America, the name was mo moved across by the first person who wrote a book on it. And, 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 it, and it stuck. You might call people angels, or you might call them business angels, just to be absolutely clear. But it is the generic term that survived, what, 40 years? Yes, yes, indeed. Right, okay, so that's um, a, a nice sort of uh, overview of the big picture and how funding has changed over the period. Maybe we just sort of fast forward to where we are today. Now, obviously, I need to emphasise that you having written a substantial book here, that we're only going to be able to give the smallest taste of it. I mean, just to give people uh, a feel, you've got 43 case studies. I thought aesthetically it should have been sort of 42, going back to Douglas <laughs> Adams. But uh, maybe you, if we were too busy working in the 70s, unlike me who was listening to the original um, Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy. But there are, there are four sections in the book on angel investing per se, investment opportunities and terms, managing investments and the, and the exit, and a lot of detail. I mean, I, for example, found the second part on investment terms, very interesting, because never having been near the detail of the sort of, um, well, what I regard from the outside as, as witchcraft of venture capital, 
uh, and all these terrible things that venture capitalists do with sort of thousand page contracts and, and all this jiggery pokery to lever them up compared to the, the average person. You know, there's a, there's a lot in there. And obviously from an investment perspective, there's a hell of a lot of detail. I just like to emphasize that, which is really useful education. We're not going to be able to get into uh, any of that um, uh, detail at all. So there's a lot of detail in there. But just coming back to the big picture, in terms of you've written this book, when you wrote the book, you know, if you had to simplify it to one or two things, what were you trying to achieve for the world uh, and for the person who buys your book or picks it up and reads it? Oh, OK. Well, let me, let me just say, first of all, I wrote an earlier edition of this book in 2012, published in 2013. And at that point, I was asked to write it by the publishers. They said, would you write a book on unquoted investment because we feel we'd like one of these in our portfolio and they're business publishers. So I wrote it partly as a commission and partly because it seemed an interesting project. Now, when I came back, when I came to write the book we're talking about, today's book, eight years had passed. I happened to be in, uh, in lockdown, as, as you were, and I was looking for a project. And I became very keen on the idea of trying to put on paper my experience in a way that might help other people doing this, because I saw it, I saw it and see it as not only a very financially rewarding experience, provided you obey a whole series of rules, uh, but also it's rewarding in the sense you're, you're helping entrepreneurs get a leg up in life. You are actually fundamentally helping the UK economy. And by the way, you're not actually spending any money. You are investing money, which you might lose, but you're not, you're not spending money. So you are actually, an, an angel is an extremely important member of society in the sense of stimulating and helping the, the economy to grow. And I'll just offer you one little statistic, which is there was a report, it's a slightly aged report, but there was a report done, which I quote in the book, in 2015, which reckoned there were 15,000 angel-backed companies in the UK in the four years running to that date. The combined turnover was estimated at £9 billion, adding £4.5 billion to GDP and 70,000 jobs. Now that just just does say these companies are very important. It is not big companies that create jobs, it is little companies. Some companies stay little, some companies grow. And the other thing that I think, I only really, it sounds silly does this, but I only, it really only sunk in when I came to write the book. In that eight year period from 2012 to 2020, the world has changed. We have the technology, boom, this, our icon in the book, Tsunami, which is based around a rapid advance in computer technology, cost of computer data going down dramatically, the internet, and finally, and absolutely critically, the smartphone. Online retailing depends on the smartphone. A lot of, you know, a lot of on-time on -time buyers do not use computers. And that has completely changed things. And furthermore, then that's caught the imagination of the media. And you now see angel funding or early stage funds, uh, early stage entrepreneurship and so on, heavily written about in the media. And of course, going right back to what you said at the beginning, the programme Dragon's Den, which I guess, you know, encompasses all of that period, which just shows that people have got some sort of an interest in this. So there has been a, a huge shift and I was very keen to try and, to, just to summarise that, I just was very keen to put across what I have done, why you could do it and why it is useful, that you, why you would enjoy doing it and why it is useful for the rest of us that you do do it. 
Absolutely. Okay, that's good. So I think there's um, we can put this into two sections. So there may be many people in the audience who are already angels or who invest in small companies and they want to do it better. And I can guarantee having read your book that absolutely every one of them is going to learn something from your very clear showing of literally decades of direct personal and professional experience in doing so. And uh, if they read the book, they will, I'm sure, get better returns going forward. So there's the one for the angel, and then maybe we wrap up later with what there is for the founder and the company. If you want to attract angels into your life, what is it you need to know? So, but let's start off with the kind of, you know, the big picture of how to do angeling well, how to be a good uh, angel. And I did say, um, perhaps slightly loosely in the introduction, that uh, this is about investing in uh, unquoted. Well, of course it is. But I quite liked uh, your sarcasm. Uh, your, your heart is near mine on this one in the book, as you did a sort of a, a slight to the crowdfunding industry en passant, because uh, many people will be invested in small companies via a crowdfunding scheme, but um, that's not angeling per se. So where do you draw the line and, and, and what is it in particular that you see that isn't so optimal about crowdfunding? And I, I suspect that you would not expect yourself to get such good returns from crowdfunding as you would from angeling. No, I, I, we're just coming to on crowdfunding. I think from crowdfunding, you, you'll probably get extremely bad res returns. And the the problem with crowdfunding is you are shown something sexy on a screen and you can invest really quite small amounts of money, £100, say, or whatever. And, of course, with all these things, if it goes wrong, you can lose your money. The tax incentive schemes may reduce that loss, but you will lose money. The trouble is what you have got no knowledge of as just, a, just a, 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 an ordinary man in the street crowdfunding investor. You've no idea whether the entry valuation makes any sense at all. And it's fundamental to angel investing, as I describe in the book, that you must be looking for high returns on your investments because you are going to lose a significant proportion of them and another significant proportion is going to do relatively poorly. And one of the many studies I quote in here had something like 15% of investments angels make make more than five times their money. Well, if 35% are losing all their money, you know, it's very hard to then get the equation to be working so that you make money overall. And therefore, if you lose money, you lose it. If the company goes fails, you lose all your money. Nothing changes there. But your, your entry price is important. If you can't realistically see the possibility of, say, 10 times your money, five or 10 times your money, whatever, whatever market, whatever market you, you set for yourself, then you are not going to make money overall. The other way you're not going to make money is if you make two or three investments. You might get lucky, but your chance of getting one of these winners, you know, five times money or more, or, or at extreme, I've got one I quote in the book where we made more than 100 times money, but, you know, you can't go looking for 100 times money. That's an extreme answer. You know, it's just a much more professional, sophisticated game than... than Crowdfunding is a bit like Betfair, you know, as you see it advertised on the TV whilst you're watching the football, who's going to score in the next five minutes? And you're yeah. almost certainly going to lose. Yes. So just as a sort of simple schematic on the whiteboard, as it were, if you're investing via crowdfunding, 
and then almost entirely you're an insignificant percentage yes. of the company. You're as an individual insignificant to the company. You have zero control uh, over the terms of your investment, all that kind of stuff. You then get into the angeling world where, by and large, a given angel will be more significant to the company in terms of percentage of shareholding. And by and large, again, as a big generalization, that angel will have some control over the terms of the investment and the valuations and, and this kind of stuff, even if it is just uh, that, I, let's say I'm raising money and I have a negotiation with you and you'll say, look, I'll give you a pound a share, but there's no way I'm giving you two kind of stuff. Yes. And, and yes. I say, well, I want pound ninety-nine, and we've got no deal, but at least you're having a conversation about pricing. And then, just to, to continue the schematic, there are angels, and I think that there was some stat in the book where the majority of angels do actually only have one or two investments. That's fine, but that's a punt. As you say, that's just a bet on a horse or a bet on football. That's okay. If it's your mate and you bung some money in there, it works out, it works out. If it doesn't, it doesn't. What you're talking about much more is how to do angel investing professionally, i.e. if I'm putting, for the sake of argument, and I know I've just ruined my own metaphor here, if I'm putting 50 quid in some, some company, I don't really care. If I lose the 50 quid, it doesn't matter. If I'm putting 50 grand in, I really care. So if you're at the stage where you actually really care about the sums of investment or it's a significant percentage of your portfolio, then you will not want to do it amateurishly and badly. You will want to do it professionally. And uh, from what I read, your, your book is really focusing on your decades of experience and you're telling people that, look, if you're going to be a serious angel, these are the kind of things you should think about. These are the kind yes. of things you should be, should be doing. Yes. And there's nothing wrong with putting money in crowdfunding sites as long as you expect to get sort of ripped off and, and legged over and that. There's nothing wrong with bunging money in, in one or two. But if you're getting to the stage where you're building a portfolio, let's say of 10 investments, which you suggest, um, and you're putting significant money in, well, then really it's something you should sort of uh, actually sort of think about rather than just sort of, as it were, walking to the casino, bunging your few on number yes. 42, bunging your few on number 34 and hoping it comes up. Is that roughly right? Yes, and, and, and there are two sides to it. I think it's extremely important if you're going to try and see this part of this, at least, as about how do I make some money from it, that you invest in things you broadly understand. Now, if you broadly understand it, you'll look at it and say, hey, that is not going to work for whatever for the, for the re a reason I know about. Or that may very well work because that is a clever answer to a problem I've come across before. Whereas if it's something you know nothing about, it's, you know, what's the colour of the man's eyes and, and that kind of thing. And if you're going to be an angel in the way we're describing it, you're going to meet the management. So you can apply the rule which I do, which is if you don't like the people, don't do it. Because you are going to be living with them for a lot longer than you thought you were. Because there's no, way, there's no easy way out of an angel or a venture capital investment. It's not like marriage, you get divorced. There are no divorce clauses. So your only way out in reality is when the thing either fails, which is a bad way to be out, or it's sold or it goes public. And you as a small investor aren't in control of that. However, if there are five of you putting up for the sake of this discussion, 100,000, which gets this company really moving, you've got some measure of influence. Maybe one of you goes on the board, you're going to expect progress reports from them. And, and the last company I got involved with, the lady founder said, I want to know who the angels are because I want to know if they can give me some value besides money. You know, can he introduce me to X, Y, and Z? And I thought, well, that, you know, that is actually quite smart because angels are, are capable. You know, they're not there to manage the business and most of them wouldn't, either couldn't or wouldn't want to, but they are capable of bringing things to the party. The central issue for the angel, 
once you've got a series of guidelines, and my book's all about guidelines and being systematic and sensible, but once you've got that, uh, what you must have is deal flow. You must see opportunities. It's no good just going down the pub if you remember the days when you could go down the pub. It's not going to go down the pub and meeting some guy over a pint of beer and say, oh, I've got this great startup idea. And you say, well, okay, I'll give you 10 grand. You need you need much more deal flow than that. And so I, I counsel in the book the wisdom of joining, they may not all call themselves this way, but angel networks, groups of angels. And there you have somebody at the center who's coordinating. They find the deals, they will do a written report on the thing which attracts you or doesn't attract you uh, and they'll charge a fee for that but they'll they will only they normally only do it uh, on success and that gets you that gets you deal flow it is no good just scratching around thinking i'll see things from time to time you know you're not going to see enough decent ones that way and you haven't got you haven't got the comparators to make all the time so the first point you're making there which um wouldn't want to skip over which is uh, the quote's obvious one, but it's easier to stray from it, which is invest where you know what's going on. So I know a bit about fintech and a little bit about FS. So I have a reasonable feel for people in that sector. I have no feel for people in, for example, I don't know, supermarkets sector. I wouldn't be able to look at a supermarket CEO and go, hmm, I think there's something a bit odd going on here. I would have no sort yes. of nous at all. And then, as you say, that the, the, the first part of angeling once you decide, look, actually, this is significant to me, I want to do it properly, uh, is to see the deal flow, just exactly the same as a VC. You're a mini VC in a way. You want plenty of deal flow. Um, I was quite surprised by the stat in your book, which is you know, a better part of 100 angel syndicates in the UK. And, you know, the UK is just a small little island and goodness knows how many there are in, it, in America and all that kind of stuff. And there's something called the UK bar or something. Uh, which sounded like a sort of sheep thing, but actually it's <laughs> UK Business Angels or something. Business Angels Association. There we go. There we go. So you can find them out by that. In terms of raising money, there's all kinds of snake oil salesmen that go around raising money and charging fees and, uh, and all this kind of jazz. Maybe we'll come back to that kind of mechanism when we're talking about for the, the, com the company. So you see, the, you see the deal flow, you invest in the stuff um, you like. But in terms of syndicates and the number of angels, I mean, I know there's no such thing as typical and I know that the stats are, are a bit sort of thin, but let's just say there's an average company for such a thing in the UK raising money this month then I think I've seen different numbers, but it was sort of 25 grand is the average angel investment or 50 grand I've seen as the average angel investment. Obviously varies from sector to sector. And roughly how many angels, you know, if you're doing one of the, if you're raising a million to two million, for example, you've gone beyond the friends and the family and your credit cards keeping you going for a little while and sweat equity and all that kind of jazz. You want to raise one and a half million and you're doing it through angels. How many angels are you going to end up with in a, a dozen? If you think of an average as being 25, which sometimes you know, might be a bit high and sometimes it might be low. That's four angels to the hundred. And how much we're raising? We're raising 1,500. Yeah, so we're looking at 60 angels. Now, that's very difficult to do. That's why an, you're not going to do, do it on your own. That's why an angel's network is helpful because the angel network's job is to say, look, we're trying to raise a million pounds here. Would you like to contribute? And But we're not asking you to find the rest of it. We'll find the rest of it. But recognising the importance of this to the economy two things have happened over time. The first is the tax advantage schemes led by the Enterprise Investment Scheme, EIS, which reduces your losses on failure, enhances your profits on success, and has been with us since 1980. And no government has attempted to lessen its power 
as governments have changed, nobody has lessened its power because it is so helpful in, in, in terms of the economy. So that's a very important part of the thing. And then more recently, the government, back in 2012 or 11, I think probably, the government launched a thing called the Angel Co-Fund. Now the Angel Co-Fund is 100 million of money. It's, it's grown a bit now, but that's by the by which invests alongside angels on the same terms as angels in angel syndicates. So, and they're not allowed to take more than 50% of a syndicate in, typically they take about a third. And that, the, the reason for that was it helps get to this million pounds marker. Because if they put up 350,000, you've now got to find 650, not a million. And they will come in on the same basis. Uh, so that's a very that's a very powerful addition to the challenge of getting the money together. And of course, what then happens is company XYZ says, well, I raised 25,000 scratching around my family and friends. Now I've raised half a million, say, from angels, and I, I, I want to raise some more. And, and when it gets to the more stage, the question is, can we go back to angels or do we now have to go to the mainstream venture capital world? Um, and that I, I discussed that that sort of issue uh, in, in the book. Yes, so hearing it that way and going back to our sniffy view of crowdfunding from the investor's perspective, crowdfunding very much sounds like the poor man's angel syndicating with a significant difference being that on a crowdfunding site, the company has set the terms. I go on a crowdfunding site, I say my shares are two pounds a share. With an angeling syndicate, uh, even if you're part of a very big syndicate, there's been a lean angel who's gone over there and has given me a good kicking and said, Mike, you know, get out of here. Two pounds is crazy. You yes, know, that's right. 50p maximum, 50p maximum. And OK, we end up at 75 or something like that. So how does the lead angel function work? I mean, you, you've, you've done quite a bit of this yourself then. Are you just being a mini VC, but just sort of syndicating? Well, in a way, well, if, you, if you think back to my, my model of the angel network, the angel network sits down as if he were a VC and he negotiates with the, with the company he does some due diligence, kicks the tyres, checks this, checks that. And he says £2 and the entrepreneur is saying £5. And they have a, a, you know, they have a session on that. Now, he is saying that without the ability to write the cheque because he's now got to go back to his syndicate of investors whose money he normally won't have power to invest. He'll have to ask them if they want to invest and write them a paper as to why this is a good proposition and it's a good deal at this price and then he raises money all at the same price. Now, that is in some ways more difficult than if, if that person were, that little that angel network were a VC, they can then write the whole check. That's the good news. The, bad, the good news about the angels is because they write several checks. If when you come to ask for more money, one of them says, well, actually, Mike, I don't like you anymore. I think you were telling me porkies before, I'm out. But he was only one of nine, not one of 20 investors. If the other 19 come along, you can raise more money. If that entity that invested was one VC, it's yay or nay. You know, so it's, in that sense, it's more dangerous. The other thing that the VC will do with his million pounds for 20% say is produce a whole list of things you're not allowed to do without his consent. You can't hire people over a certain salary. You can't change your business, all sorts of stuff. Uh, and he will always certainly want to be on the board. An angel syndicate will probably want a representative on the board. Most angels either don't or aren't interested in being on boards, don't have the time or whatever, but they would expect to see somebody 
not just representing their interests, but keeping the management team honest, helping them grow. And as you know, as these young companies grow, one of the big issues is the management team has to evolve. The team that started it probably are not completely the team that will be running it five, six, uh, seven years later. So it's a much more sophisticated game than just writing a cheque. That means somebody in that somebody in that group has got to take a fair degree of responsibility, and that's really what Lead Angel is about. And when you go to the Angel Co Fund, the government's Angel Co Fund, which I was describing, the person who presents the proposition is not the management; it's the Lead Angel. And the Lead Angel says, "Here are the reasons I'm investing, and here is why I'm investing at this price." And then the implication is, "Would you like to come along on the same basis?" It's not the management who make that pitch, it's the lead angel. Yes, now one of the interesting things is to say I'm sort of, uh, I just regard the whole sort of VC world as witchcraft in terms of their terms and conditions and all that kind of stuff. One of the missing bits of, uh, of my to come book on the history of the company, which is uh, currently just sitting on the computer resting, which is that I never managed to find out yet. Any listeners who know, please do tell me because it'll save me a pile of work because I never actually found, despite a bit of trying, when equity stopped being equity. So that originally the idea of equity was it was equitable and everybody had the same shares and all the shares were the same. And then you get the A's and the B's and <laughs> yes, the C's yes, and the yes. D's. Yes. Um, and then uh, I think I sort of uh, take the Michael out of the, uh, the BVCA's, whatever it is, I don't know, 36 page terms and conditions, which sort of, uh, you know, leave them up to be even better, superior class and, and all that kind of stuff. So, so the idea of a completely sort of uh, uh, equitable equity went away uh, in history. Yes. Um, a long time ago. Yes. So anyway, so I'm, I'm not so familiar with all, all that kind of uh, detail. Anybody that knows where share classes came in and, and why, please let me know. But one of the interesting things that in terms of some of the minor witchcraft, which does relate to angels, and this does relate actually to the original days of oh, the company, if you want, the 16th century, which is that if you're an angel investor, if I'm an angel investor and you, you set up some company and I'm trying to raise 100 grand, Mike, oh, I bung 10 grand in is that you talk about having to keep some money to the side for follow-on investments, and you talk about scary things like wipeout rounds, and so we're getting to witchcraft already. So we don't have, I mean, we could do a whole podcast or a series <laughs> on, on witchcraft, VC witchcraft, which of course angels sort of have yes. to understand themselves for, for a whole bunch of reasons. But so how does it work then in terms of rule of thumb about keeping stuff for follow-ons, and what on earth is a wipeout round? Okay, well, the company raises half a million, shall we say. Its projection of the future may say that with half a million pounds we will get to the point where we are cash generating. We're profitable cash generating, we don't need any more money. The trouble is that projection is looking into the future with a whole pile of assumptions involved. It's probably wrong. It's almost certainly too optimistic. Entrepreneurs are not known for pessimism. <laughs> or they wouldn't be entrepreneurs. You know, mindless commitment to optimism is sort of an essential characteristic of an entrepreneur. So the company makes some progress. Now, it might progress to plan, but it might not progress to plan. It's more likely to not progress to plan. Not necessarily badly missing, but missing. So, nine months down the road, it's clear that it's going to need more money. Maybe you always knew it was going to need more money. And so, at that point, the first thing you do is you look at your existing investors and you look around the table and say, will people provide us with extra money? You can have a negotiation on the price. And... What you'd normally find at that stage, if the company's making half decent progress but just need but doesn't need more money, you'll find if we're talking angel syndicate, 
a big chunk of the angel syndicate will come along because they're very loyal or angels but you need more money than they can provide so you've now got to go and look to a vc or another group of angels and actually it's the new guys who are going to set the price not not the old guys because if you're all taking your share if you own one percent of the company and you take one percent of the new issue of shares the price is irrelevant now if the company is doing really really badly so you could all say, this is, we're going to just let this thing fail and walk away from it. Or somebody might say, well, actually, I still have faith that we can make something out of this. But I'm not going to pay a huge price to support your investment, Mr. Ballyman, because you're not prepared to write a check. So I'm going to propose a very, very low price, which says that if you don't come with us, you are effectively wiped out. You still have shares, but they're a tiny, tiny percentage now and all the value of the future business comes into the hands of the new people putting up the money. Now, when you get to that extreme, that's very, un very unpleasant experience. Indeed. <laughs> Spores your whole day. <laughs> yeah, people are not like each other. There is an intermediate thing called a down round, which sort of says we did value it too highly first time and we're going to reduce the value. But it's not, you know, so we're going to reduce the value by 50%, shall I say, not 99%. But these things happen because things do not go to plan. I mean, just think of your own life. Just think of the economy. Things do not go to plan. There is a plan, but it's very, it can be very hard to achieve. And of course, if you're a young company, you're trying to do something different, better, whatever, than other people are doing. People have got to buy your product, whatever it is. They've got to be prepared to pay the price you want to sell it at. And... There's got to be nobody who comes along suddenly with a better offering and yours doesn't look any good anymore. So it's a really, it's a really difficult thing. And the further back you are, by that I mean, if you're just at the, we're sitting in the pub with a bright idea and a, on the back of an envelope, the higher the risks are. If you've, on the other hand, you're nine months down the road and you've written some software and you've got the first customer signed up at a certain price, that's still risky, but it's a lot less risky. So pricing is, is more of a, an art than a science. The main conceptual things that's come out of the American VC industry is that I put my money up. You're the entrepreneur, I put my money up. I say my half million pounds. I want my half, when we sell this business, I want my half million pounds back. So if we only sell it for half a million pounds, I get my money back, you get nothing. When we sell it for more, we start dividing the proceeds. Then we go to another VC, 12 months later, and we persuade them to pay a higher price per share and they're putting two million in. And they say, ah, yes, but we want our two million pounds back first. So you'll have this approach of the, typically the last financier is the first out if there's an exit, a sale, that's not fantastically profitable. Normally what happens in American speak, if a company's doing really well, then all this priority stuff disappears. It's all converted into ordinary, ordinary shares and everybody's ranking exactly equally. The preference, these priorities all kick in at, you know, in different performance level. So it's a very complicated game. Yes, so as listeners who are perhaps not so experienced in angeling can work out from this, there is a lot of witchcraft, to use my phrase, uh, in it. There's a lot of sort of art as well as science. And I think that it would be a good idea to, to join one of these angel networks as a newbie angel, if you want to learn it and, and learn from those older and wiser and help have those kind of people steer you through deals over time until you start being a, a lead one yourself. Because there's, um, there are all sorts of uh, scenarios for those people who aren't 
aware of the venture capital industry or their sort of <coughs> tips and tricks, yeah. as it were, and you can really get um, screwed over. Just on this point, though, as a rule of thumb, and I know it's impossible because the answer is zero to infinity, but so as a rule of thumb, if you're bunging 10 grand into the London FinTech podcast, Hoodies Limited Business, I'm going to sell hoodies around the world, they're going to be a big fashion, fashion thing, you give me 10 grand, do you have any kind of personal rule of thumb about how much you keep behind for a follow-on round? It depends on the position of the company at the time because it may be the company's two years old and it's raising some money and it says this is the last money we're going to raise before we become cash positive uh, and then if we were to raise more money to try and go faster we've all got a choice as do we do it or, or don't we um and that might look quite secure the further back you go in the in in the life of the company the less secure that looks so as a rule of thumb i would expect in an early stage business to put in at least as much again maybe in two doses and i had a company that coincidentally we sold two weeks before lock the first lockdown and we'd had three rounds over three years oh well actually over two years but at the annual point and i'd put exactly the same amount into each of the rounds and at that point we probably would not have needed more money but we were bought for a lot of money so the matter went away so you just you do need to allow for that and of course if you don't if you say well, i'm a one-shot investor as some people are if there's a down round you just have to say well hey you know if the price has dropped that's part of the game i have played okay so you so you, you cover the, the, this kind of stuff in, in, in the book again and i like the phrase the one-shot investor and again just for a, a rule of thumb um, then you know you might have to put the same amount again in to avoid being diluted away to buggery and you're talking about the age but also there's a sector we've had various shows on fintech as you might imagine over the past seven years and i've forgotten but 95 percent plus of fintechs are losing money and will keep losing money forever yes so yes that's a, a, that's a different industry again and, and then of course there's a whole other world about when the angels can no longer do it and in terms of writing my book i had plenty of cases where the angels were holding them back um, and, and the vcs were nibbling and there's all sorts of tensions around this but just moving on sort of just very quickly wrapping up um, our main course here so looking at it briefly from the company's perspective so we've talked about how to be an angel and given some idea um, of that world uh, but if you're a company and you want to attract angels into your life the two things I th I'd like your views on which are the first is my capital A angels small a angels and then actually sort of demons at the end of that spectrum and then also then the, the second point is that there are lots of people out there who will raise money for you for a fee and they will come to the entrepreneur and say oh for a small fee so yes, I'll, yes. I'll, raise, I'll raise you the money which kind of relates perhaps sometimes to demons so a typical demon trick I'd heard of which is that um, and it's maybe a sort of Dragon's Eden one which is that somebody bungs you 100 grand for 40% your company or, or something like that knowing that um, the, the VCs will have to pay them out handsomely so they kind of got sort of ransom money in there well, that was reported to me last year that sort of was happening quite a bit in in lockdown actually because companies needed money and people were coming in taking advantage of naive founders and basically this sounds rude in english but it's not so rude in french fucks them over so how does a company how does a founder find an angel and how does he ensure he goes to the capital a angel and, and avoids the demon end well in my experience if you're going to have angel funding a lot of the benefit of angel funding comes when you've got a number of them not one you know, one angel is probably more dangerous than one VC. One VC can be very dangerous, but one angel is probably particularly dangerous because they don't have sort of an institutional approach necessarily. They don't have a set of rules that you can check out. And I'm just thinking of one company I'm involved with where 
The entrepreneur was offered a lot of money by one individual and he turned it down. Nothing to do with price, he turned it down because he said that guy is at the very best going to be a pain in the neck all the time and I don't, I haven't got time in life uh, to deal with him. So I would, I would then say, well, you want to have a group of angels. The big advantage of a group of angels is you've got a, a selection of experience that might be able to give you benefit at some point and furthermore if one of them gets divorced dies whatever it doesn't mean that the rest of them can't put up what money what money you need later and I think you need you need some strength in that group because as you say that it is it's perhaps overstated but but it it it, it is believed by lots of people that when venture capital comes along it likes to tread all over the angels the entrepreneurs are important but the angels aren't now you can write the rules so that that's very difficult to do but you have with all of these things you have to have your eyes open and ideally you'd have advice an advisor who was non-conflicted who would say hang on a minute i know these terms are now getting too egregious or or, or whatever you know, when with you build a judge with hindsight, did you make a good decision or not? But that's terrific because you can't rewind. Yes, I mean, one of the things that you say in your book is that there's an inbuilt tension in that the founder wants money ASAP, generally, uh, otherwise it wouldn't be raising, um, uh, and also the founder's super optimistic, whereas the angel has got to be careful because the angel's looking at the, the downside, he's not in a big rush, he can, if he doesn't invest in your company, he can just in, in another one, and the entrepreneur can get desperate and pick the wrong one. And I heard a story last year, first-hand account and not in fintech where some company had needed the money and some chap turned up and said I can provide you with the money and this chap turned out to be a demon and a little bit down the road there were two years of legal battles and the founder was wrapped up in court for bloody ages uh, you know and, and not just the cost of court not just the pain in the arse not just the lost sleep but the distraction from being able to focus on your business was huge and all money raising is hugely distracting and you don't want the entrepreneurs to spend too long doing that. You don't want the money raising all the time, so it's very distracting. But an important part, point there is you must be predicting the future in terms of cash. Because you can always look at cash cautiously and say, well, let's assume we make no more sales for three months. When will our cash run out? And if the answer is it's going to run out in three, three months, you better get on with money raising now. You can't wait till you're three weeks from the cliff edge. And one of the, one of the things that decent quality angel support or VC support for that matter could give you is to be looking all the time at how we doing with our what's called the cash runway. When will we run out of cash? In other words, when must we trigger raising more money or, or not as the case may be? And I think within that one piece of my experience is I do not do things that would face the consumer, directly sell to the consumer where a lot of the funding requires then on raising bigger and bigger marketing budgets because firstly I don't understand marketing but secondly you know that money's going to have to come from somebody deep pockets and what's going to happen to the rest of us and by the way Jim over there may suddenly have got a similar idea to us taxi hiring for riding firm for example and he's got a bigger bigger you know a bigger wallet backer than we have. Yes. Okay. And then just to, just to wrap up on the, on the second part of this sort of complicated question, which is that, so from the founder's perspective, fundraising is one of the most stressful things you can go through. It's not simple, at least if you're trotting around to, I mean, you haven't mentioned your sector, but I believe you're sort of, you know, B2B software-y. Yes. Uh, yes. Speciality. Uh, let's say you're in that sector. There'll be only be so many VCs around, uh, around uh, London, for example, that it's worth seeing, but there'll be a hell of a lot of angel networks. So there were these people of, of all sorts of persuasions 
who will turn up and say, oh, Mr. Founder, yes, I know, it's a complete pain. I'll tell you what, I'll go and do it for you. And just personally, again, over, the, over, over time, I've heard all sorts of fees that people want to charge for that kind of stuff. Yes. How would you counsel a founder uh, who, who's having people knocking on his door saying, we'll do it for you for a, for a small price? Well, the quality ones will only do it with you. They won't do it for you because, you know, you're the entrepreneur. You're the one that's got to eventually persuade the funder. And of course, what it's like everything else in life. You know what you should do if somebody comes along and you think, well, this person does sound as if they could help me. Take some references. Insist on speaking to some clients they've raised money for. Now, of course, they will tend to feed you people who will give you good references, as everybody does. But it's, it's not difficult nowadays on the internet, is it, to check somebody out and see whether there's a, a lot of uh, abuse. And I think you, where you've got to be a bit careful is lots of firms of accountants. By that I mean people who are professional and they charge fees by the hour, shall we say. A lot of them say, well, we will help you fundraise. Some are good at it, but some aren't. And most things I have ever done have been done by direct contact with the company, not through an intermediary. And I think you mentioned last year that you had lots of approaches, unsolicited approaches to you for investments and, and you avoided them all. Oh, you do? Well, you, no, of course you do. Because if your name gets picked up as having made some investments, and you can do that from uh, look at company's house, look at the share register, and you, you see how Richard Hargreaves' name's on several companies. Therefore, he's an investor. Therefore, I'll start sending him uh, opportunities. And they tend to be people promoting companies with some sort of glossy document. And yeah, I'll mostly avoid those because I don't know the people. I don't know who's in the syndicate. It's not my kind of thing at all. Now, a new person doing some of this may be tempted to do that, but they need to be very, very careful about extravagant claims. You know, we're going to be the next mega fintech. Well, yes, possibly. But there are a lot of other people trying to do that too. Yes, I get hundreds every month emailing me saying that they are the next. Yes, and how can you and how can you distinguish between them? The answers with great difficulty. Well, I was about to say with great difficulty and, and far more time than people would actually imagine. Anyway, we've certainly covered a lot in a fairly short period of time. Like most things that involve sort of professionals, in the looser sense of the word, professionals, there's far more to it than meets the eye. You zoom in and it's got fractal complexity. But anyway, before we wrap up the show, I'd like to thank all the listeners out there, invested in small companies or not, and whether you've been encouraged or discouraged from doing so. I think my takeaway is that like everything in life, you know, I hated rugby at school, but the one thing I remember from rugby is you either tackle somebody or you don't. And I got very good at not tackling people, actually, <laughs> which is the sort of yeah, same thing. Yeah. But actually, the people who played rugby while they tackled, what you don't want to do is be half-arsed about it. You don't want to half-tackle somebody at rugby, you'll get injured. In the same way, you don't want to sort of, you know, unless it's just a couple of punts, you don't want to mess around in this area you do it properly or, or, or don't I'd also like to thank my brand partners for the podcast smart is transforming pensions and retirement worldwide their leading edge retirement tech platform propelled them to success in the uk now they're operating on four continents and working with partners like zurich and jp morgan find out more at www.smart.co then listed board.com resources to help you start making your board an engine of growth today so richard normally in the show we have this sort of dessert round and um guest company may not have mentioned their business uh, once or twice but uh, you may have mentioned that uh, you've you've written a book and um, you may have written, mentioned that uh, angeling once or twice before we sort of uh, keep people waiting for the the discount code which is definitely worth having i thought one thing i'd sort of say and you can give me your feel on this which is that people can have a misunderstanding of why 
people write books. You've written a book, I've, I've written a book. And they can kind of think that actually people who write books are just trying to make money and sell them. But I certainly know myself. My book sells for £15 and I make, oh, I think £4.50 if somebody buys a book on, on Amazon. So roughly speaking, I can buy myself one pint of beer, depending on which pub I go to, from a book sale. So it really is not in any economic sense worth my time at all going around doing sort of book flogging stuff. It isn't done for that reason. It is much more done from the perspective, and I'm sure it's the case with you as well with your experience, which is that there is a heartfelt desire to share wisdom and experience. And in my case, I had to borrow all the wisdom and experience because I have neither wisdom nor experience myself. But the aim of doing the book and the aim of promoting the book is actually to empower the community and to empower society, to empower entrepreneurs, empower businesses. And I'm sure it's the same with you, which is that your motivation and we haven't mentioned your returns, but your returns uh, on your portfolios, you mentioned in the, in, in the book in the, in the last 15 years, something like 5x pre-tax tax and, and 10x post-tax. So, you know, you're not selling your book at, what, for the sake of argument, five, 10 pounds profit per book uh, to increase your net asset value because your angeling has worked out extremely well. I mean, multiplying your money after tax tenfold yeah. is quite a uh, good return by anybody's standard. So from that perspective, I would just encourage anybody out there who's, got, who's doing webinars or doing panels or, or stuff like that to reach out to authors, uh, the likes of Richard or myself, who are doing it kind of for evangelical reasons. You know, if you're JK Rowling, it's a different world entirely. But uh, presumably, Richard, if people reach out to you via LinkedIn or, or whatever, and they want someone talking about this on a panel or on a different podcast, other podcasts are available, you know, that you just like sharing this material. Yes, because I think that what I realised was I've been doing this for a long time. And I've made a very, very large number of mistakes and I've made some very good decisions. It's a risky game, but it can be profitable. And part of what I did in the book, which I have never seen before, is showed my returns. It's very difficult to get angel returns because people, to put it crudely, most of them don't keep the records. I mean, it sounds ridiculous. They don't keep proper records. I happen to be a bit obsessive about that, so I had the records. So converting that into track record was not difficult because I had the raw data. And so part of that was me me looking at myself and saying, have I really been sensible doing this for so long? And the data shows that at least one person doing 42 investments can do okay. So I encourage others to do. So I look at I look at the positives of angel funding as, you know, it can be financially rewarding. For me, it has been. It is fun. It's what drives me in life. It can be very satisfying. If you help a company, and by the way, it's had some problems and you've helped come through those problems and you know that your help was part of where they are now. That is very satisfying. It is also, as I mentioned, actually very socially responsible because you're helping the economy grow. You don't need to make too much of a deal out of that. But, you know, it's not, not, not like betting on horses. However, you've got to be systematic. You know, you need to use your knowledge and experience. And I have learned to my bitter experience that focus is a very valuable thing. Deal flow we talked about, you must like the team we talked about. You must make a decent number of investments because you are going to lose some. And of course, if you know which ones you're gonna lose at the outset, you wouldn't back those, would you? But you don't. Use the tax advantage that, that are available whenever possible. That's not to say don't do anything that isn't tax advantage. You have to be patient. You'll get the slight impression from the media that, you know, we put our money in and two years later we're, later we're multimillionaires. My three best winners each took 10 years to become convertible into cash. And be very, very careful about media hype. You know, I'm not saying, I'm not criticising the media here. I'm just saying you see examples of stories 
that uh, you just won't easily replicate. And my final word on that is, if you don't enjoy doing it, for goodness sake, don't do it. You've got to get a kick out of it. You've got to get a satisfaction out of putting something back. But you're right, Mike, it's not... What I'm trying to do in the book is put some of that across to help other people. So, for people out there, do by all means try my book. You could can, can read the forewords, they recommend it, but I suppose they always would. It costs £25 with a free ebook. Amazon has it on there at the moment at about £1.50 less than that. But the best place, having listened to this, you could go is to the publisher's website. The publishers are Harriman House, and Harriman is H A R R I M A N. Go to Harriman House, put my name in, and you find the book. And then use a discount code BUSINESSANGEL25. They do it in capitals, I'm not sure it's important, but BUSINESSANGEL25, and that'll get you a 25% discount. And I think that, as we've tried to say throughout this podcast, a lot of what's in there talks to you about how angels behave, what the characteristics are, and also with VCs. So it's actually quite an interesting read for an entrepreneur to understand the psychology of the guys he's about to deal with. Excellent. So for those who've forgotten Richard's full name, it's Richard Hargreaves, H-A-R-G-R-E-A-V-E-S. The book's called Business Angel Invest. Ding. Harriman House, and you say Business Angel 25 was the code? Business Angel 25 is the discount code. When you go, when you buy through Harriman House website, there's a discount code moment. And if you put discount Business Angel 25, uh, you'll get a 25% discount. Excellent. Well, that's definitely worth having. And I'd like to thank you very much on behalf of all the listeners, Richard. I mean, there are many things that have gone wrong and more things seem to be going wrong um, in Western society at the moment. But one of the things that we've forgotten compared to all traditional societies um, is to learn from the wisdom of the elders. And uh, there are a few who have your kind of experience. If we're doing this American podcast, I'd probably entitle it, you know, the UK's best angel investor or something like that. I'm not as old as Warren Buffett, let's put it uh, that way. There we go, yes, exactly. Well, fortunately for you, he's, he's in the UK. But um, <laughs> yes, this is a, a rare distillation of, uh, well, I wouldn't say a lifetime, but I mean, 50 years investing is, is longer than most people's career. So for those of you interested, do go and check out uh, Richard's book. And I just echo what you say, Richard, in terms of, I mean, I wouldn't use the word economy these days, I tend to use the word uh, society. By doing this, you're benefiting society, you're benefiting people, you're benefiting the founder, you're benefiting the employees, you're benefiting the customers. Uh, and as I keep saying on, on podcasts uh, recently, uh, given what we've been through, we need lots more entrepreneurs trying to grow the sector, particularly how small and medium businesses have been uh, asymmetrically hammered compared to the sort of uh, megacos in the last year. So it's a valuable thing. And we've spoken in the sort of quite engineering terms about how to approach this systematically. And I can see how your background has been very good. We talked about Nigel Verdon was on the show recently, and he was also started as an engineer. And I think engineers tend to think in terms of replicable processes, which are very valuable in, in professionalising these kind of things. But also, I quite like the note that you finished on, which is don't do it just for the money. You've got to do it for the love and the, the enjoyment of it. And uh, of course, I shall just emphasise that uh, there is the, the enjoyment in the same way that uh, you, in, you enjoy the uh, whatever those uh, the, the, the things are at the fairground where you go up and down. <laughs> It has its ups and it, and it has its downs. Oh, no. It absolutely has ups and downs. You, you shouldn't do this if you want a really quiet life. I mean, there are, highs, exactly. there are highs and there are lows. If you're prone to nervous anxiety, don't, uh, don't get into this. No, that's right. But just my final sort of little anecdotal thought is uh, I've mentioned early on, though everybody's probably forgotten now, that I, when I was at ICFC, now 3i, 
I put 25,000 into a starter called Microfocus. Ironically, I pass its headquarters now every couple of days and I get a little kick when I go past it. That was not my personal money, remember, even that was somebody else's money. And it's, uh, I just feel there's a little bit of satisfaction because that thing might not have existed if I hadn't put that 25,000 in. Brilliant. Thank you very much. Thank you. Thanks for listening. If you are in need of a non-executive or advisory director with deep expertise, experience and contacts in the worlds of both traditional FS and fintech, or unique insight into how to make your board an engine of growth today, contact me at mike at mikeballiman.com. If you just need one-off advice in these areas via clarity.fm slash mikeballiman. We could sit in a bender all day Watching the firelight dance Watching the firelight dance We could walk in the mountains before dawn Watching a happy moon ride Watching a happy moon ride Come away from the city But with the tarmac so dead And the people so sad Come away from the city But with the faces so grey With the pain of the Mountains and the trees Can you see what I mean? Can you see what I mean? We fit in between the earth and the sky Kiss the city goodbye Wave the city goodbye Wave the city goodbye Watch the firelight dance with me. 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 Watch the firelight.